Well, good morning. Good morning to those of you in the traditional service. This is the first Sunday of Advent. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But I want to start with a story about Steve. Steve was 18. A couple of his friends had just gotten Apple Watches. And Steve really wanted one. So in the spring of that year, Steve went to his mom and dad and said, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't you combine my graduation present and my Christmas present into one present and get me an Apple Watch? I'd really like an Apple Watch for graduation and Christmas. And they said, fine, we'll take that into consideration, son, but are you okay if you wait till Christmas? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. So Steve went silent for a while, and then as it got closer and closer to Christmas, he began to drop hints. He began to email pictures of Apple Watches to his parents, talk about Apple Watches, and finally his dad said, hey, Steve, that's enough. We get it. As a matter of fact, if you say any more about this Apple Watch, you're going to drive us crazy, and you won't get it. So Steve went to radio silence. Until that night, his dad asked him to pray at dinner. And Steve said, before I pray, I want to share with you a meaningful verse I have found in the Gospel of Mark. It's a, a verse that uh, God is using in my life. Jesus is speaking, it's Mark chapter 13 and verse 37, and uh, speaking to his parents, his brothers and sisters, Steve quoted the verse, and the verse goes like this, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And Steve got his watch. Now, never mind how he abused Jesus' words. Now, I say that because as we move into the Christmas season, many of us are just like Steve. We're focused on that one gift, that perfect gift. Or we're focused on that party we're going to have, wanting that party to be perfect. Or making sure our house looks perfect, all the Christmas decorations, or it's a, it's a meal, or maybe it's a year-end sales targets at work. I want to have a, a perfect year-end. I want to reach all my financial targets. And along the way, we miss the point of Christmas. And that's exactly what happened in the first century when Jesus Christ was born. I mean, think about the Romans, the Roman political leaders that were living and leading, uh, occupied Israel. Uh, these were astute, well-educated people. Uh, but what they were looking for, what they were preoccupied with was power, solidifying their power, keeping the Jews in place. And because of their thirst for power, they missed the birth of Jesus Christ. So did the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Uh, getting lost in the details of the law, uh, consumed with an external righteousness, looking good in the eyes of other people, looking good religiously. And they missed the advent of Christ. So did most of the everyday normal people living in Israel. Think of Jewish businessmen trying to put food on the table, uh, trying to take care of their family, trying to maybe uh, to get ahead, farmers, shepherds, and on and on. And caught up in that pursuit, they missed the advent of Jesus Christ. 
Do you know what you will find this Christmas? You will find what you're looking for. What you're focused on. What you've set your sights on. If it's a boyfriend and you're going to do anything, uh, you will do anything to have a boyfriend, you're going to find a boyfriend. If it's a job thing and you're going to do anything to, to get it done, uh, you'll get it done. You see, we are what we love. And we give ourselves to what we love. And often we find that the things we have pursued don't fulfill us, don't transform us, don't change us from the inside out. And this is where Advent, the Advent period, the Advent season is so very helpful. Advent is a period of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And it's a period that the church set aside centuries ago in light of the magnitude of the birth of Jesus Christ to help us to prepare our hearts so we don't miss the point. And today I want to kick off this Advent season. We've just lit the candle of hope by going to one of the early, one of the most famous, one of the most wonderful stories full of incredible things in Luke chapter 1. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at the appearance of the angel Gabriel and his announcement to Mary, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus. And we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. So out of respect for the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Favored is the word grace. You who are highly graced, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found grace or favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. You may be seated. Mary's going to find three things here. 
the identity of her son, the virgin birth of her son, and the freedom of submission. But let me back up and go to verses 26 and 27 because I want you to note something here that Luke is doing. What we see here in this collection of portions of verses 26 and 27 is Luke's attention to historical detail. I want you to see that. All sorts of names, the name of the city, uh, the names of people, the name of the angel, and even some calendaring events. We are told specifically that Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Now Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of the uh, book of Acts, was a medical doctor. So he was a researcher. He was a scientist. And Luke is giving us these specifics in order to communicate to us that he's not writing fiction. He's not writing fable. He's not making this up. He's writing history, and you can go talk to these people or talk to their uh, adult children and, and check all of this out. Now, we know this because of what Luke says at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. So look at these words. He says in the first paragraph, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that you may have the, now here it is, the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now certainty is an important word here. It literally means to be locked down, to be unshakable, to be immovable. And what Luke is telling Theophilus, he's saying to all of us, I want your faith in Jesus Christ to be locked down. Unshakable, immovable. I want you to be absolutely certain in your mind because that's what produces confidence in your heart. And that's why he gives us the detail in verses 26 and 27. So now let's move on and let's look at this identity of Jesus. And let's begin with what Gabriel tells us first in verse 31. He tells us, that Jesus is our Savior. We look at the verse, and at the end of verse 31, we see this when he says you are to call him Jesus. Now, Jesus is Hebrew for God saves. That's why we say Jesus is our Savior, because it's Jesus' very name. It's Hebrew for the salvation is from the Lord. So Christianity here is claiming what Gabriel announces, by the way, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. As Jesus himself will say in John, the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus will announce that he is the only Savior, the Savior sent from heaven. Now there's Old Testament prophecy behind this. Jesus is here beginning to fulfill the prophecies relative to the Messiah and to a particular aspect of the Messiah, prophecies such as we find in Isaiah chapter 53, where we are told that the Messiah would suffer for the sins of his people. We are told in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities that the Messiah would be the Lamb of God who would die 
in our place for the sins of God's people. Now, what's interesting to me is a Mary immediately picks this up. So if we bounce down to verse 47, and Mary begins her song of worship, one of the very first things Mary says is that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's connecting prophecy. She's connecting themes in the Old Testament. And Gabriel is telling us, Mary, you're about to have a son, but this is no ordinary son. This son is the Savior of the world. Now, by the way, let me just say parenthetically, when Mary says this, Mary admits her sin. Some people today want to think that Mary is sinless, but when Mary says, my God, my Savior, she is acknowledging she needs a Savior. She is acknowledging she she is a, a sinner. What was her surprise is that her Savior was her son. Now, all of this is quite incredible. And I've been actually concerned this morning that I can go through this and and somehow we can kind of understand the words, but we miss the wonder. Think about what's going on. If our greatest need was information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need was technology, science, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need was money in the the markets, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need was pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need is for forgiveness, and what does God send? God sends a Savior. But we have a problem. A little boy wrote a letter to Santa, and he said, Dear Santa, there are three boys in my house. Jeffrey is two, David is four, and Norman is eight. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. But Norman is good all of the time. And I am Norman. (laughs) Now that's our problem. There are no Normans. None of us bat a thousand. None of us are are, are perfect. In fact, if we were to roll a video, imagine a big screen back here, and we were to roll a video of each and every one of our lives that, that reveal our sinful thoughts, our sinful words, our sinful deeds, that video would be devastating. Because each and every one of us live with regrets. I do. That's why we need a Savior. I've just started reading a book. It's a biography of an alcoholic. And she describes that when she was a teenager, she began to cut herself regularly because her boyfriend cut himself. And they would get high and they would cut themselves together. And a little further into her story, she starts to address why she cut herself. 
And, and she said, I, I, I cut myself because by carving into my skin, I create a sense of inadequacy that my words can't express. And she goes on and says, it's the one pain I can control. The one pain that I can claim is my own doing. And I read this right at the beginning of this long biography, and I thought, how tragic, how sad, how horrible. I mean, what are we doing to ourselves? And then I thought, Rob, your sinful thoughts, your sinful words, your sinful deeds, how horrible that looks in the sight of God. I don't know about you, but I don't need an Apple Watch. I need a Savior. You will call him Jesus. And the world changed forever. But Gabriel doesn't stop here. Gabriel goes on. Not only is Jesus our Savior, but in the very next verse, he tells us Jesus is our God. Look how he puts it. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. If you bounce down to verse 35, there Gabriel adds, he will be called the Son of God. Now these three, great Son of the Most High, Son of God, are different ways of saying the same thing. They're different ways of saying that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that Jesus Christ is God. Gabriel is announcing this coming baby will be the Savior to be sure, but he also will be the Lord. The Lord of Lords. And he begins with great. Just as we are told over and over in the Old Testament that God is great, so Jesus will be great. Jesus will be great in every way. God is great. Great in power and great in mercy. Great in righteousness. Great in justice. Great in beauty. Great in truth. And when Lamentations tells us in Lamentations chapter 3, uh, God, your faithfulness is great. Great is your faithfulness. It's pointing to the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus will never abandon you. This Christ of Christmas, this baby that was born 2,000 years ago, is not going to ignore you. He will be faithful to you when you are faithless. He's great. Paul goes on and says that Jesus' greatness is so amazing that Jesus is actually before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. But there's a paradox here when it comes to Jesus. Because Jesus, on the one hand, will be majestic. On the other hand, he will be meek. Jesus is about to be born into poverty. His life will be full of trouble and hardship. If you want to describe the last three and a half years of Jesus' 
life, his earthly ministry as his job, I want to submit to you there is a real sense in which his job was just awful. He was despised and rejected by men. He experienced pain and persecution. Misunderstanding, innuendo, rejection. Uh, Jesus will face homelessness and, and, and hardship. He will die a criminal's death. Crucifixion, that's a criminal's death. Crucified naked on the cross. Yet Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord. He is the God, Gabriel is announcing. And following his crucifixion, God exalted him by raising him from the dead and giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, God. That's what Gabriel is announcing here more than nine months before Jesus is even born. Now let me apply this. I want you to notice this word great because we get this we get this concept of greatness backwards today. We tend to think of greatness if you're a student in terms of popularity or or success or the number of Facebook likes we might have. We tend to think of greatness in our culture as status, power, position, privilege, prestige. So we promote ourselves and we play to the grandstands and we practice, even in the church, what's called image management. Because we're capitulating to our culture's concept of of greatness. But Jesus comes along and Jesus uh, turns this concept of greatness upside down. Because even though he was God, he humbled himself by becoming a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And as Jesus would say of himself, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. What is greatness? Greatness isn't status, it's service. It's not power, it's not position, it's not pride, it's not not ability, it's humility. Last weekend, I was in Colorado for some meetings. I uh, had uh, some conversations uh, uh, with a guy who's got an important job in the gas industry in the southern part of the United States, and uh, we were talking about leadership, and he mentioned parenthetically that just a couple weeks earlier, he'd had a private meeting with the vice president of the United States to update him on what was going on in his industry. And then a little later... When we came back to the subject of leadership, he said, I am absolutely convinced that the number one characteristic of a great leader is love. A great leader loves his employees. A great leader loves her people and serves them. And Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life for the many. When the Bible talks about greatness, it is very different than our current cultural concept. And don't be deceived. Don't capitulate to that. So, Gabriel has told us that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is God. Now we come 
to the second half of verse 32 to verse, uh, through verse 33, and we see that uh, Jesus is our king. Look at how Gabriel states it. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now, this drips with Old Testament promises and prophecy. Jesus will ascend the ancient throne promised to him, the very throne of David. But unlike David, Jesus will rule forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is ruling the universe now, and he will rule the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem forever. Now, I, I got to tell you, I, I love this aspect, and this is woven in to a part of my daily spiritual discipline because every day I, I begin my spiritual discipline by, by telling myself, Rob, you are not the king. Jesus is the king. 1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be the honor and glory forever and ever. Rob, you're not the king. Jesus is the king. Your desires, your agenda is not the king. Your health is not the king. Your church is not the king. Your job is not the king. Your family is not the king. Uh, your, your marriage is not the king. Jesus alone is the king. And I've had to learn this the hard way. A theologian that I have a great deal of respect for lived a couple hundred years ago here in the United States. His name is Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards once said this. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, which is to fully enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations on earth. And then Edwards adds, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, or children, or the company of friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. And I've had to uh, learn this the hard way because when my first wife died, I had this choice. Is Carol a scattered beam or is Carol the sun? Is God a scattered beam or is God the sun? Stream versus ocean. And as God spoke to me and God began to work in my life, I realized that God is the substance of my life. God is the son of my life. God is the ocean. And when we understand that men and women, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can handle anything because Jesus is king. And that's Christmas. Now, Savior, God and King. Let me apply this and we'll move on. How do you know you're really a Christian? How do you know if you're growing as a Christian? 
One of the tests is by whether or not you're believing in Jesus as your Savior or you're going deeper and deeper and understanding the grace and the mercy and the compassion of, of Jesus. Another is, are you obeying Jesus as your Lord? I know I'm a Christian if I'm believing. I know I'm a Christian if I'm obeying. Never perfectly, but pro pro progressively. And then finally, that I'm serving Jesus as your king. Now you can't pick and choose. Gabriel doesn't give us that option. He's our Savior, and He's our God, and He's our King. And I submit to you, uh, to the extent you are tracking in all three of these areas, and these matter more to you than anything else in your life, you are growing in the grace of God, and you understand, and you will not miss the point of Christmas. Now that's Jesus' identity. Let's shift to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Gabriel announces this after Mary's question in verse 35. And he says, how is this going to happen? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He's describing the virgin birth, the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of Christmas, one of the greatest miracles in human civilization and human experience. Now, earlier in verse 27, we were told that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. She was a virgin, but pledged to be married to Joseph. Now that pledge period in the first century was what uh, is, was called a betrothal period, and it's different than our engagement period because it's so much more formal. It began with a public ceremony, usually lasted about a year, and it ended with a week-long wedding ceremony. And in between... The couple did not live together. The couple did not uh, sleep together. And so this is why Mary self-identifies as, as a virgin and asks this legitimate question in verse uh, 34. How, how can this happen? Uh, because I'm not with a man. I, I, I'm not married. And what is Gabriel's answer? Gabriel's answer is, well, the Holy Spirit will impregnate you. What? Now, if this doesn't challenge your categories, if this doesn't stretch your imagination, then maybe you're not hearing this. Mary, the Holy Spirit will impregnate you. He's going to come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Just as the Holy Spirit will descend upon the church and later in Acts chapter 2 and empower the church for a couple thousand years and counting, so the Holy Spirit's going to descend upon Mary. And Mary will conceive and the conception will be supernatural. It'll be wonderful. It'll be amazing. Now let me ask the question, why? Why was the virgin birth necessary? And the short answer is, it was necessary in order for Jesus to save us from our sins. You see, to become a man, Jesus had to be born of a woman. He had to become a man in order to die, so he had to be born of a woman. But to remain sinless and perfect in God, he had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
So this means that Jesus is unique, one of a kind. He is the only person who ever has lived who is one person with two natures, human and divine. And in his humanity, he was able, as I said, to die on the cross for our sins. And in his deity, he was able to satisfy the demands of a holy God and and, and his justice. So this virgin birth is a category-shattering event. We can't comprehend it. But just because we can't comprehend it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Because here the infinite becomes finite. The supernatural natural. The impossible uh, possible. Now let me apply that. Uh, Maybe you think it's impossible to be forgiven based on what you've done. Or maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you think it's impossible to forgive that person. I will never forgive him because of what he did. Or or, or maybe you're in a, a bad place right now with a child or another relationship. Uh, maybe you're, you're single and you're really struggling, you're married and you're really struggling, and you think, you know, it's just impossible, this isn't going to change it, and you're starting to get impressed, and maybe you think it's impossible to endure the pain I'm going through. Well, look what Gabriel says last. For no word from God will ever fail. Now, I prefer the translation, for nothing will be impossible with God. The two translations are saying the same thing. No good, no word from God will ever fail. He's faithful, he's good, he's merciful, he's kind, he's aware, he's omnipresent. No word from God will ever fail. Or nothing, nothing is impossible with God. I mean, think about that. Do you know in your hearts that there is no sin that God can't forgive? No pit that is too deep for God to reach into and to bring you up. There is no relationship that God can't restore. No grief that he can't comfort. No situation that he can't turn around. If God has the power to have Jesus be born of a virgin and the Holy Spirit, he has the power to do anything In your life, he sees fit. And rejoice in that. Cling to that. Now let me go on and let me move to a conclusion. We've talked about Jesus' identity. We've talked about um, the virgin birth. Now I want you to see Mary's submission And the freedom, hear me, the freedom in submission. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is one of the most beautiful statements of submission in human history. What is submission? Submission is you voluntarily placing yourself under the authority of another. 
And it's demonstrated in Mary's life here by taking God as his word. How do you demonstrate your submission to God? By taking God at his word, believing it and, and obeying it and living under its authority. And Mary will do that even though it means right now in her particular set of circumstances, trusting God to do the impossible and to embrace the horrible assignment God is giving Mary from a human perspective. I mean, Mary understands the social implications of what's about to take place. She understands that now she is going to be rejected. She's going to be viewed as an immoral woman. She's going to be viewed out as an outcast. Oh, there's gold Mary. She's carrying a baby out of wedlock. And Mary says, I'm all in. And I'm going to take you, God, at your word. So what is submission? What does it look like for us? Let me ask you two questions. Submission question number one. Are you willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says to do, whether you like it or not? Are you willing to trust God in anything he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not? Are you willing to obey? Are you willing to trust? Whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not. If you can answer those questions, both of them, not just one of them, but both of them with a yes, then you're moving down the road of submission. Now, don't misunderstand. Submission wears many different faces. Think about Noah. Submission for Noah meant building an ark year after year, year after painful year, even though everyone thought he was crazy. So submission is accepting the ridicule of doing God's will. Think of Abraham. For Abraham, submission meant leaving everything that was comfortable, everything that was familiar, stepping out into the unknown because God had called him to go. Submission means a willingness to go. For Moses, it was consciously choosing to be mistreated along with the people of God, the Jews, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of the palace of Egypt. Uh, submission was stepping beyond the snare of materialism, saying, I'm not going to live that way. For Rahab, it was taking this huge risk of befriending the spies, welcoming the Jewish spies that were her very enemies that could have easily uh, killed her. Submission involves taking risks for the kingdom of God. For Joseph, it, it meant refusing sexual temptation day after day because he had a vision of the holiness of God. Submission is sexual purity. For Mary, it was saying, yes, sir. And nowhere more beautifully do we see this submission than in the advent of Jesus Christ. When Jesus left the splendor of heaven, Jesus willingly submitted to God the Father and became a man and went to the cross and died in our place for our sins. And when you see this Christ child of Christmas as the bleeding, dying Savior of the world, risen from the dead at the Father's right hand, and that grips your heart, it's going to produce submission in your life.
the freedom of submission. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what Jesus did for us. And as now we turn our attention to the table, prepare us as we think about the wonder of who Jesus is, our Savior, our God, our King. Open our hearts to the beauty. Give us the assurance and the certainty and the confidence of the gospel. Amen.